Let's uh, keep worshiping together by turning to the book of Amos. We'll be covering nine chapters, and of course I won't be reading them all, but it probably would be good for us at least to look at the most famous verses in the book. Chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Amos 5, 23, 24. That's where we'll start today. But we'll be studying the entire book. And a special thank you to the church family who has been expending the time, energy, and effort to read ahead with us through this study of the Minor Prophets, the Twelve. We've asked our church family to read ahead and then to read behind. So even if you didn't read Amos coming into the service today, I would still encourage you to at least read it after to see how it all fits together. Because ultimately what we need is not what I say, we need what God says. So the more attention that we can pour into God's revealed word, the better off we'll be. But it is my desire to share that with you today in a way that will be helpful, help you understand exactly what God wants to say to his people, even now, as we look to the book of Amos. Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. On August the 28th, 1963, the sun shone brightly through the nearly cloudless summer Washington, D.C. sky. Though not unbearable, the heat and the compact nature of more than 250,000 people crowding as closely as possible to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial even provoked some to take off their shoes and stick their feet in the wading pool. This unprecedented gathering of individuals convened upon this spot on this particular day to express a common concern, one for racial equality in America. And though 10 different speakers would address the need for ongoing reform for racial justice in the United States, one man in particular would unleash such a powerful word that our country would never be the same. You know his name before I even say it. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He had originally prepared a short and somewhat formal recitation of the sufferings of African-Americans attempting to realize their freedom in a society chained by discrimination. And history reveals that while these words informed the crowd, that they by no means sparked into flame the movement that would soon take over the entire nation. Among the fuel for the fire that would burn that day were the lines that we just read from Amos chapter 5. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. 
God would even use his word in this historical moment in our country to fuel much-needed change. But what strikes me about this often overlooked aspect of King's speech is that despite his best attempts, problems still persist. Thankfully, as civil rights legislation has been passed, much has changed in the societal structure of our country. But it's at this point that I find it intriguing, to say the least, and sadly ironic, that King's intended exhortation for racial conciliation, rooted in the prophecy of Amos, has in some circles of Christ's church incited conflict and confusion. Among Christians, there is conflict and confusion. For some, even mentioning words like justice or talking about societal reform serves as a harbinger of liberalism and gospel compromise. After all, as one writer put it, if you put in a good word for social justice around some Christians, they may assume that you hug trees and hate police officers. To express any concern for society, poverty, trafficking, or refugees equates to taking your first step away from wholehearted allegiance to the gospel. That's one group. And then there's another who, for them, not addressing social issues exposes a cold-heartedness that calls into question the authenticity of one's conversion. In other words, and again, I'm here I'm quoting, if you aren't into social justice, then you must not care about racism or abortion or sexual assault or inequality or even the Imago Day itself. Have you entered into any of these debates? Have you seen this happen yet? For some, it's a neo-fundamentalism. For some, it's a neoliberalism. But for all Christians who have accidentally stepped into this or intentionally, they know the heat that can come from both sides. But God's concern for societal change is not a mere tempest in the conservative evangelical teapot. This topic also bears consequences for the name of Christ throughout the entire world. See, friends, I want you to know that uh, the Christianity that you claim to believe in has a PR problem. In the broader world, I mean, there is the active, and you need to take this into consideration, seriously. The, there has been thousands of years of world hi history that has indicated, as one author put it, more people are exploited and abused in the cause of religion than in any other way. To some, sex, money, and power all take a back seat to religion as a source of evil. Religion is the most dangerous energy source known to humankind. The moment a person or government or religion or organization is convinced that God is either ordering or sanctioning a cause or a project, anything goes. And so, the history worldwide of religion-fueled hate, killing, and oppression is staggering. Now, friends, I don't want to hide you from history. You can't stick your head in the sand. 
we're not just talking religion generally, but Christianity specifically has a legacy of using power to oppress those who most needed its message. But there's not only the active abuse of authority in religion, there's also the passive. Christianity is not only critiqued for its negative social impact, but it's also critiqued for its lack of impact altogether. You may may remember that this is uh, in part why Karl Marx called religion the opium of the masses. He thought that belief in God could help stop the pain, but that it was ultimately not of much use in dealing with what he considered to be the deeper and the real problems of life. Thus, county and city officials, even in our own day, have their greatest debates on what to do with zoning for churches. I sit in some city council meetings sometimes. One uh, commissioner explained that zoning and land use conflicts consistently rank among the top reasons why religious organizations end up in court. What county commissioner wants to field concerns about the inevitable noise, lost property taxes, and Sunday morning traffic jams if these groups do not produce tangible societal good? They think they're just another business. Now, friends, we know better. But the world looks and says, okay, so what impact are you having upon us? Where is the positive change that you're supposed to be producing? Which leads to a whole host of questions. What impact, if any, should this church, forget the church, capital C, think about this church, have upon society? On Collier and Lee counties in Mayport. Is there any hope that we can provide to those who are exploited and taken advantage of, to to the marginalized, to the oppressed. What impact does God intend for his people to have upon society? That's the question for us this morning. And Amos, in particular, will give the answer. Thankfully, biblical prophets like Amos stand at the front lines of correcting and clarifying the societal flaws that are sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes endemic to the biblical faith. One pastor explains, the biblical prophets continue to be the most powerful and effective voices ever heard on this earth for keeping religion honest, humble, and compassionate. Prophets sniff out injustice, especially injustice that is dressed up in religious garb. They sniff it out a mile away. Prophets see through hypocrisy, especially hypocrisy that assumes a religious pose. Prophets are not impressed by position or power or authority. They just tell it like it is. And so, our prophet today, Amos, faces something similar. I think that many of you here today would especially resonate with Amos. He's not a seminary-trained guy. He's not a professional prophet. He's bivocational, if you will. If we modernized him and put him in this church, he would be a lay elder, not a staff elder. Now, he was a herdsman. He actually took care of multiple herds of sheep, and he was also uh, a fig farmer as well. This indicates that uh, he was a man who knew how to get his hands dirty, he knew how to work, but he also knew business. 
by the style with which he writes and his familiarity with the countries that were around him, it seems that this guy was a professional, one who would travel from place to place and not only stay there in his little village of Katoa. But there's something else interesting about Amos. Not only does he have a common sense business kind of attitude, but he tells it like it is. See, uh, Amos is from the south. There was a civil war in the nation of Israel, dividing it from Judah in the south and Israel to the north. Well, after this civil war had taken place and the countries had successfully seceded from one another, Amos actually had the chutzpah to go up as a southerner to the north and establish like a prophetic ministry in one of their religious capitals. And he will with much boldness, just tell them exactly like it is. And his primary message to God's people in the north is that God will judge your injustice. That's the message of Amos. God will judge your injustice. And so, with this, you can see how Amos is going to answer our question. Amos clarifies God's timeless concern for justice. Specifically, it shows us that God judges his people for injustice, and we see this play out in three different ways. If you're taking notes, this is the way you could outline the book. The shocking who, the societal what, and the sorrowful how. The shocking who, chapters 1 and 2, the societal what, chapters 3 through 6, the sorrowful how, and 7 through 9. As he's denouncing injustice within the people of God, first notice the societal, or excuse me, the shocking who. It begins right at the beginning. Go to Amos chapter 1. We see this introduction to Amos in the first verse, but notice what he says in the second. And he said, here's his opening announcement, the Lord... Yahweh roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. So here's your introduction to the main character of the book. It is not, by the way, Amos. The main character of any book of the Bible is God himself. And so here we are introduced to this main character and he is described as one who is roaring now i don't know what you know of lions but sometimes i think that we can be a little naive and just assume that they roar for no particular reason based on everything that i've been able to figure out not only from biblical times but even the way that lions act today one of the primary reasons why they would ever roar is because something or someone is encroaching upon their territory. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief uh, that lions roar when they're about to attack, that's kind of ridiculous. They're silent hunters. They wouldn't want to scare the prey away. So when the scriptures here say that God is like a lion who roars, it isn't that he's about to just attack them because he's on the offense. N no, it, it is actually communicating something different. They have encroached upon his territory. They have trespassed. They have gone past the exceeded bounds that he has set for them, and he is about to attack. 
And a lion's roar is fascinating to me because of how loud and ferocious it is. I think scientists would estimate that it, it sounds at about 116 decibels. That's only a few decibels less than a jet engine and a few decibels more than a rock concert. I mean, it is a ferocious thing indeed to hear. And so we're establishing the tone for the entire book of Amos at the beginning. God is not cooing. He is not whistling. He is roaring. He is upset about the injustice that has pervaded his people. And what blows your mind from the first two chapters is the object of his judgment. That's why I call it a surprising who. And indeed, it would surprise them because Amos, in an interesting way, will kind of set them up. Maybe you've been set up before in a conversation and somebody all of a sudden turns it on you. Uh, when you look at verse 3 of chapter 1 and you follow it all the way to verse 3 of chapter 2, you're going to notice these nations. I mean, let your eyes scan through it. You see uh, Damascus, that's the Aramaeans, uh, to the northeast of Israel. Then there's Gaza, the Philistines, they're to the southwest. You scroll on down, you see Tyre, that's the Phoenicians, they're to the northwest. Then you're going to see a pronouncement of judgment against Edom to the southeast. And then Ammon and Moab to the east. Now, if you were to try to put this together, like on the biblical map, what you're going to notice is that you've got dots that are all the way around Israel, which is right in the middle. It's kind of like a, uh, <laughs> it's like a game of prophetic a battleship. Uh, God is sinking, if you will, everyone around Israel, and they're going Yes, God, get them. They're like, hey, uh, Amos, Southerner guy, we don't mind you. You're pretty cool because you hate the same people we hate. In fact, Amos denounces the nations because of their cruelty to one another, but especially their cruelty to the people of God. And so you could just see Amos preaching away and everybody saying, yeah, get them, like blast them. And so he is going, uh, just getting closer and closer and closer to Israel. And then all of a sudden you get to verse 4 of chapter 2 and it gets kind of dangerous because notice verse 4, it says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord. Who is Judah? Judah isn't just the foreigners. Judah was their southern neighbors. These were their compatriots, their, their brothers. Even though they were politically divided, they were ethnically the same. And so now it's kind of like, well, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, God's sinking Judah's battleship as well? And then you get to verse 6, and he nails it. He nails Israel between the eyes, giving them, in fact, the longest denunciation in the entire oracle. All the other nations get like three or four verses apiece. And then all of a sudden you go from chapter 2, verse 6, all the way to verse 16, and God is pouring out judgment on his people Israel. He's saying, you deserve judgment. It isn't just the foreign nations who have been cruel and hostile. You deserve it in particular. And for what? He'll clarify this more to come. Uh, but notice just the, the introduction to their crime in verses 6 and 7. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver 
and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Just pause there for a moment. I just want you to notice that like the reason why they were being indicted here is because of their abuse of other people. They were taking advantage of others who were beneath them. There will be charges of immorality and idolatry. He will also mention the suppression of the truth. And then when you look in verses 13 to 16, you find that the judgment will be heavy. They will be devastated. They will be obliterated. Just like we read in Deuteronomy 28, as God had promised, he says, if you disobey me, you will be destroyed. And verses 13 to 16 make this clear. But the point of these opening uh, chapters of the book of Amos is that we should be surprised by the who. These are unexpected objects of judgment. See, the Israelites thought because they had been circumcised and because they were Abraham's great-great-great-grandchildren that they were going to be totally immune from God's judgment, even though Moses warned them. He warned them in Deuteronomy 28 that your ethnicity and your religiosity is no special protection for you whatsoever. You still, under the old covenant, will experience the white-hot wrath of God for your disobedience. And so the text clarifies that it isn't just the pagans, it isn't just the unreligious, it is even those who grow up in the right families and have the right denominational affiliations that God will pour out his judgment upon if injustice characterizes them. should shock us. It should remind us that there is no free pass for ignorance, there is no free pass for ethnicity, and there is no free pass for identification as religious. Can I just be really clear for those of you who may be a guest or maybe you've been here for, for years and you just assume by virtue of the fact that you have some religious affiliation that you've gone, undergone some religious ceremonies of some kind, that you're somehow going to be immune from God's wrath, and yet the text actually says here it has nothing to do with your ethnic background, it has nothing to do with your religious affiliation, it has nothing to do with how you spend your Sunday. If someone is truly in covenant relationship with God, it will be evident through their interactions with other people. Anybody can say, I'm a part of this religion or that religion. Anybody can claim to go to church on Sunday. But God here is warning his own people, don't take your ethnicity as a special immunization from the ethical obligation of those who are in true relationship with me. So there is the surprising who. But the next three chapters will then show uh, more of the specific nature of the sin. What is it exactly that God is so angry about? Especially when we throw out words like justice and injustice. What does he mean? So now I want you to notice the societal what. There's the, the shocking or surprising who, and then there is the societal what. What is it that God is so angry about? Why is it that God would pour out judgment even upon his own people? And what you're going to see as you read chapters 3 through 6 is that there will be four separate rounds of formal 
indictments against the nation of Israel. And when I say formal indictments, like I want you to imagine like somebody showing up to court on a particular day, sitting before a judge, and then being accused of particular crimes, an argument and a case having been made against them, that particular day of judgment being done, and then they're brought up later on different counts of disobedience. So four different times this is going to happen. They're in and out of court for four rounds. The first round is in chapter 3, and this is where we'll get clarity on their, uh, what it is exactly that they've done. I mean, if you're going to be accused of something before God Almighty, he better tell you exactly what it is that you've done. In verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3, you can read through that quickly. You're going to notice that basically God is saying, you are in trouble. <laughs> uh, things are not good for you. And then in verses 9 and 10, he tells why. Look at it. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. He says, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right or righteousness, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Notice God even calls the foreign nations as witnesses and he says, hey, you guys even know that these people are not marked by righteousness. They oppress people even in their own midst. Now, will you hang with me for a moment? Because what I'm going to do is fast track you through these four rounds of indictment. I want you to get a general feel and flavor for the exact thing that God is so angry about. And then, if you'll stick with me, I promise I'll explain what he means by injustice and unrighteousness. Can we establish that first? Let's, let's do the text, and then I'll expand on the truth. So he's in this first round. He says, you're in trouble for oppression and corruption, verses 9 and 10. And then in verses 11 through 15, he says, all right, you will be punished via national destruction. Again, like we read in Deuteronomy 28. All right, let's go to round two. This is in chapter 4. And right here at the very beginning, he's going to give another indictment. He's going to let them know what they're being indicted for. Look at it. And this time he focuses on the women, the women of Israel. He says, hear this, you cows of Bashan. Now, I, you talk about a guy. I said that the guy just told it like it was. Could you imagine saying to a bunch of wealthy women, you cows? <laughs> he says, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who curse the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Who he's targeting here is specifically wealthy women who are lazy, luxurious, and self-indulgent. I didn't mention this to you in the introduction, but I probably should have. I told you about Amos, but I didn't tell you to whom he was writing. I said Israel, but it's not just Israel. It's Israel under Jeroboam II. Now that name won't mean much to you, but if I tell you this, I think you'll understand why it matters. Jeroboam II was the most prosperous king in Israel other than Solomon himself. He had taken them to a period of financial security and material prosperity that they had not experienced in a couple hundred years. I mean, we know what it's like to exist under some presidents when the economy's up and then some presidents when it seems like the economy's struggling. I mean, we're talking like the height of their material abundance. 
And so it'd be kind of weird for Amos to come to them in the midst of all their wealth and their luxury and their ease and say, God is judging you. Because they're thinking, well, we're sitting pretty fat and happy right now. To use the southern phrase, we're eating high on the hog. It doesn't seem to me that God is really all that angry with us. And yet, even amid their prosperity, Amos is like, no, you have a problem. And he hits it here in the second round with their carelessness over the plight of the poor, their self-indulgent lives. And so it says in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, you're going to be drug out of the land. And then he says in verses 4 and 5 of the same chapter, you can try to do your religious ceremonies if you want to, but ultimately you have been obstinate. Verses 6 to 11, this is mind-blowing to me notice verse 6 he says i gave you cleanness of teeth in your cities and lack of bread in all your places yet you did not return to me says the lord what he's saying is i took food away from you at one point before this time of wealth you didn't return to me verse 7 i also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest i would send rain on one city and send no rain on the other one field would have rain and the field on on which it did not rain would wither And so two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Again, he's talking about their history, saying, look, I sent you these these judgments, these punishments, just like that locust plague back in the book of Joel was supposed to wake them up to God's greater judgment. God also sent some natural disasters into their lives before this moment of prosperity, and they just refused to acknowledge God. They refused to return to him. Verse 9 talks about blight and mildew. Verse 10 talks about pestilence. Verse 11 talks about overthrow like Sodom and Gomorrah. But notice what he says in verse 12. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. He's saying, you're being judged. You're being judged for oppression and corruption. You're being judged for carelessness over the plight of the poor and for your self-indulgence. Now notice round three. I know this is hard to stomach because it seems so relentless, but chapter five, verses one to three, he says he's going to punish them via national destruction. He calls them to repent in verses four to six. Seek me and live. You see that there in verse four? In verse six, seek the Lord and live. Why? What is it that they need to return from? Verse seven, oh, you who turn justice into wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth. It's justice and righteousness. Again, there's this turn. He continues through this, and you look at verses 10 to 15, he's going to mention a kind of a similar thing. They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. By the way, the gate, uh, just time out for a second, the gate is not like the gate at your house. The gate was the political center of Israel, we would say, at the court at the county offices. And when he says that they hate him who reproves at the gate, they're saying, hey, you know what? You guys hate the ones who are actually telling you that you're doing stuff wrong. You hate the judicial branch, if you will. You hate the police officers. It says, and they abhor him who speak the truth. They don't want to hear it. Notice verse 11. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, You have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. So here it is, oppression and injustice. 
And he continues to invite them to repent, and he calls doom upon them if they will not turn from it. He warns them about the day of the Lord in verses 18 to 20. And then we get to that famous passage that we read earlier today. And what I want you to notice, especially in verses 21 to 24, is what God condemns. He's going to tell them in these verses, you think that because you're involved in religious external ceremonies that you're doing the right thing, but I assure you they mean absolutely nothing. In fact, they're absolutely annoying to me until you can correct the interpersonal injustices that you are inflicting upon others. Notice God's words. He says, I hate, verse 24, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. He's saying, you, look, you're getting together and you're honoring me through a feast and you're giving me of sacrifices, giving money. He says, don't care, don't want it. Your songs that you would sing like in a gathered setting like this, don't give a rip. They are annoying to me. Let me tell you what I really want. Verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. Now let me pause these rounds here. We're at round three or four, but let's, I'm just going to go ahead and define it for you. What does he mean by justice and righteousness? For those of you, friends, who are aware of debates that can take place among Christians on this particular issue. Here's the rub. It's that how we define the words justice and righteousness. What does it mean? Uh, here's my simple definition of the two. It's doing right by others as informed by God. There's justice and righteousness. That's the simplest way that I can explain it. Doing right by others as informed by God. Um, Analogies would include basically a never-ending harvest in the fruit of the Spirit. You see the fruit of the Spirit passage in Galatians chapter 5? Well, this is what he in part means by uh, justice and righteousness. Uh, a stream of uh, one another good. When, when Amos here is saying, I want it to flow like a stream, like a river that doesn't stop, he's talking about us just relentlessly doing that which is right according to God in the lives of others. It's the second table of the law. Remember the Ten Commandments? One through four dealt primarily with the, the vertical, and then six through ten dealt with the horizontal. That is right to do those things that were in those tables of the law. That's, that's justice. That's righteousness. It's Jesus' expression of the great commandment. You remember when the guy asked him, he says, hey, if we could sum up all these hundreds of commands into one, what would it be? And Jesus kind of refuses to answer his question directly, but he welds two things together and says, oh, here it is. Love the Lord your God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jerry married those two things together. He didn't say, no, 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 there's two. He says there's one. And to love God means that you will express that also through your love for other individuals. For those of you who like fancy Hebrew definitions, <laughs> the Hebrew word for righteousness, tzedek, means a life in which all relationships, human to human, human to God, and human to creation, are well-ordered and harmonious. 
The word uh, justice, I mean, yes, justice, mishpot, similarly refers to the institutional outworkings of such righteousness. So righteousness is doing right. Uh, Judgment is the ethical or ceremonial or legal things that flow from that, the societal implications, if you will. Now, this has been a thorny issue for some because they're not defining their terms. When somebody says, I think that social justice is essential for the outworking of the gospel, well, we need to know what they mean by social justice. I love the way that Kevin DeYoung addressed this. He said, look, I I did a study on these words, and he says, my less than exciting conclusion after studying all the biblical passages on the topic is that we should not oversell or undersell what the Bible says about justice. On the one hand, there is a lot in the Bible about God's care for the poor, the oppressed, the vulnerable, and there are also plenty of warnings against treating the helpless with cruelty and disrespect. Everybody agree with that? Okay, that's one aspect. But on the other hand, justice as a biblical category is not synonymous with anything and everything we feel would be good for the world. Doing justice means following the rule of law, showing impartiality, paying what you've promised, not stealing, not swindling, not taking bribes, and not taking advantage of the weak because they are too uninformed or unconnected to stop you. So notice, it's pretty restricted. You can't, on the basis of a call for judgment, uh, justice and righteousness, start prescribing specific legislation in many cases that would be way different than what we see here. For simplicity's sake, DeYoung offers this definition. Social justice should mean treating people equitably, working for systems and structures that are fair, and looking for the weak and vulnerable. If that's what we mean, is social justice a gospel issue? And of course, it is a gospel issue insofar as it is a result of the gospel, but not a requirement of it. Now, again, one more like stint in evangelical controversy before I move on back to Amos. I would like to contrast what I just said justice was with what some people say that social justice is so that we can be clear on this. Some people are defining uh, justice as the deconstructing of traditional systems and structures deemed to be oppressive and redistributing power and resources from oppressors to their victims in the pursuit of, and here's the key, Equality of outcome. Friends, justice is not equality of outcome. We can't determine, you can't can't do a race, for example, and ensure that everybody's going to end up first place. But you can make sure they all start at the right line. Uh, That is not what the scriptures are calling for. Not equal outcomes, but fair treatment according to the standards of scripture. And so this one brother helps us. He says, justice is conformity to God's moral standard, particularly as revealed in the Ten Commandments and the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is where we get back to the book of Amos. Amos has in mind two things here. When he says do justice, do righteousness, he has in mind communitive justice and distributive justice. Communitive justice is living in right relationship with God and with others. It's giving people their due as image bearers of God. That's just you, like, 
doing the one another's and living out the second table of the law, loving your neighbor as yourself. That's commutative justice. And distributive justice is impartially rendering judgment, righting wrongs, and meeting out punishment for lawbreaking. Now, the crazy thing about distributive justice is this. It is reserved for God and God-ordained authorities, including parents in the home, pastors in the church, and civil authorities in the state. So, like, we don't have the opportunity to do much with distributive justice in our American context apart from involvement in the legal process that God has given us. Uh, We vote for individuals who could have a say, for example, on who will sit on the Supreme Court that we prayed for this morning. Or we can involve ourselves in uh, county and city institutions that listen to the concerns of the community. Uh, th- this, this is an, an, a prerogative of the Christian, the follower of Christ. So this is exactly what Amos is talking about. He's saying, look, don't just be so concerned about your money and yourself that you don't give a rip about anybody else. That's the, the quickest way I can tell you. And then you're going to see him denounce this again in one more round, and we'll move on, don't worry. But notice the last round of indictment in chapter 6. Verses 1 through 6, read it with me, please. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria, the notable men of the first nations to whom the house of Israel comes. He's indicting the leaders, the men here. He says, pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines, these major cities. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Or you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. Pause for a second. You're reading these first six verses and you're like, man, it sounds like they're at a a luxury resort. Is Amos denouncing my uh, aspired sandals vacation getaway? (laughs) All you can eat food and drink and food and music and entertainment? I don't think that Amos here, when read in context, is actually denouncing any form of enjoyment of the physical planet that God has created. Notice that he will clarify that he's not concerned that they are enjoying fine things, but that they are enjoying fine things at the expense of something else, or to make it better, someone else. Let's continue reading verse 6. They anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. They're not concerned for others. All they really care about is how comfortable they can make their lives. That's why I said they don't give a rip about other people. They're never thinking about ways to improve the plight of those who are around them. And you need to understand something. When it's talking about the house of Jacob, these people were related. They were of the same blood. I mean, if we were talking spheres of influence, he's not talking about uh, like a kid that suffering somewhere in Haiti, if you live here in the United States, he has more in mind the people that are already around you who have real substantial needs. You should care. 
Life shouldn't be about your next vacation. Somebody told me this one time. I thought it was good. They said that you should eat to live, not live to eat. You should eat to live, not live to eat. Do you know the difference between the two? Eating to live just means I eat so that I can continue to sustain life on this earth. Living to eat means I will do whatever possible to make eating. I'll do all my living to make eating the end game. I would say to you, uh, enjoy uh, the, the good things that God has given you to live. If, if a vacation or if some form of a luxury enables your ongoing ministry on behalf of God and the gospel, wonderful. You can't give away what you don't have. But be careful, friends. Don't live for that. Don't make that your life. I would like to illustrate this by saying something controversial. I have a couple books in mind. They're two Christian books, and they're both, in my estimate, good. I think one is better than the other, but when I put the other in the lesser category, I know that so many of you have been influenced by this particular book that you're going to think I'm jabbing at you. I, would just, I want you to know what I'm going to say, I'm going to say in kindness, and I'm not condemning the second book. So please, don't confront me over this issue. I'm just telling you, I like one book better than the other for a particular reason. The two books have to do with Christians and how they handle their money. The first one is called God and Money. It's written by actually two Harvard Business School graduates who are Christians. They worked with a professor from Southern Seminary to do a biblical theology of money and then flesh out what it looks like in American 21st century culture. They rely heavily upon John Wesley's teaching on giving, which was essentially make all you can so you can save all you can so you can give all you can. The other is way more popular, way more marketed. You've probably not heard of the first book. The second one, everybody who claims to be a Christian in the United States knows because of how popular it is. And that is Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover. The reason why I'm not as excited about Ramsey as I am the other guys is because of the mantra. Live like no one else so you can live like no one else. He basically says, hey, have a budget, keep it tight. But it's the motivation that bothers me. Don't you want to live like no one else? Don't you want the nicer cars and houses? Don't you want this type of lifestyle? And again, I, I know... I trust that Ramsey knows the Lord, and I'm sure he mitigates against this, but I sense that when I read his books and I read his daughter's books. It's, it's about, man, don't you want to sacrifice now so you can enjoy stuff later? The other guys, <laughs> I mean, they're talking about making a lot of money and saving a lot of money and investing it for the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful challenge. The reason I'm giving you this tale of two financial stories, if you will, is because I think it gets to the heart of what Amos here is actually condemning. It's about the motive. It's not about the methodology. What is it that you ultimately want? What is it that you crave? Why is it that you work your fingers to the bone? Is it so that you can have the stuff to enjoy the comfort? Or 
is the stuff and the comfort just a small thing that enables you, humanly speaking, to continue to invest in God's good work that is going on around the world through the preaching of the gospel and the practice of good works? That's the difference. And so Amos has zeroed in on the, the societal what. He, he intends for us to have an impact upon society, those who are in right relationship with God. And that looks very different for different people at different life stages. All I would say to you, friends, is that there is a judicial aspect of this, a political aspect, and an interpersonal aspect. For us, as a church family, we should do the right thing. That's righteousness. We want good laws. We want law enforcement. We want uh, judges uh, th- there is a role for political involvement in the life of a Christian. We can't just like, like hold ourselves up and have no greater influence on society. I truly believe that Christians should long to acquire power for good works and gospel influence. It shouldn't just be the God-hating, baby-killing politician who gets to determine what is best for a country. I'm happy when righteous people have political influence as well. And I think that what Amos is saying here is that if you have the ability to have an impact in these good ways for the gospel and for the good works that bolster the gospel, do it. There's a political aspect, but there's also an interpersonal aspect. It's not just about structures. It's about relationships. Interpersonally, we should do the right thing. Uh, Friends, I I want you to know that uh, even though in a New Covenant context our focus is on seeing others come into Christ through the preaching of the gospel, it is still our wonderful opportunity to help the hurting and to feed the hungry and and to make this world a better place. Did you know that according to Titus chapter 2 verse 10, that the good works, like good works, stuff that people would be like, man, that's really great, I'm glad you did that. Like, that is a platform for the gospel? I'm not a big... uh, I'm not a big Beatles fan. I do like some of their songs, but I, I, I remember being stunned by seeing, I think it was their performance in New York. It was one of the largest attended concerts of all time. And I like to think of, you know, here's these guys. They're standing on the stage, you know, like they've get, they're getting out their message. But could you imagine if no one ever, like, built the stage and, like, set up the sound system? Like if they were just, like, a cappella, you know, like, like in trying to make the message go out to these hundreds of thousands of people. Friends, it's good works in the gospel. Gospel is the message that needs to go out. Did you know that your good works, like the impact that you have on the people around you, society around you, builds a platform for the gospel? It is a megaphone for the truth. And some of you are more inclined, and it's okay because we're a church. You're not just in this alone. Some of you are more inclined to the good works. Praise God for that. And I don't think that we recognize that enough here. But some of you are really good at the gospel proclamation part. And when you put those two things together, something beautiful happens. Amos says, let your Christianity, if I modernize it, have an effect on your world. The shocking who the societal what. Lastly, let's look at the sorrowful how. Friends, it goes from bad to worse. I'm sorry to ruin your Sunday, but that's just the text. In chapter 7 through 9, you're actually going to see 
five different visions, visions of judgment. Now, do you know the difference between a dream and a vision? The only difference between the two is a dream happens when you're asleep, a vision happens when you're awake. God works through Amos in a special way. He gives them these five visions. The first two will really capture your interest because uh, we saw one last week. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 1, this is what the Lord showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts. Remember that? (laughs) When the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowing. And when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, notice what Amos does here. He says, oh, Lord, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And then in verse 3, it says, the Lord relented concerning, and it shall not be. So basically what happens here is like a movie preview. You like movie previews? I do. I went to a movie the other night, and they didn't do any. And I was like, what happened? (laughs) I like to see what's going to be happening, you know, later on. Here we have some movie previews, if you will, of God's disclosure of judgment. And what's interesting is that the first two, this one about the locust, and then this other one about the drought that you see in the verses to follow, they actually don't ever happen. The movie gets canceled. So the preview happens. Amos is going to intercede on their behalf, and what it does is it shows that God sometimes is kind enough to show us what he would do if we won't turn, but when people intercede, it makes a difference, and God will, according to the text, relent. It shows us his compassion. It shows us his mercy. It makes it clear. This is what you deserve, but you didn't get it. So these first two visions are great because God is about to pour out this special judgment upon them. Amos intercedes. God says, okay, I'll relent. But the last three aren't that bright and cheery. Because what happens next in vision three is that God is going to give him a vision of a plumb line. Verse seven. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to Amos, what do you see? And he said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now, for those of you who are probably under the age of 12, you may not know what I mean by a plumb line. You may be thinking of plums in a line. (laughs) That is not what we mean at all. A plumb line is just an ancient instrument in which a weight would be tied to the bottom of a string to show whether or not you were building a level wall. And guess what? I know this. I have some construction experience. You build a crooked wall, you know what you got to do? You got to tear it down. There's no like tapping it into place. It's got to come down. You got to start over again. What God is saying is, I held up the line of righteousness. You guys were crooked, and I will destroy you. At this moment in the book of Amos, something interesting happens. There's going to be a narrative like expansion on what had happened. We get some like behind the scenes. Amos is writing, but he tells you about an event that happened while he was preaching. So he's clearly preaching at this particular time, and this high priest interrupts the preaching. His name's Amaziah, and he says, you can't say that here. It sounds to me like you're trying to incite a rebellion against King Jeroboam. Basically, you take your, your little like, shop and get out of here and go do your thing down in Jerusalem. And Amos, I mean, this is strong. I want you to notice what he says to the high priest. This guy's like a political ruler in Israel as he's, his vision is interrupted. Look at verse, um, 
17, this is what he says to the uh, high priest. Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. And friends, less than 30 years later, this very thing would happen as Assyria would come in and invade and take over. Amos ain't playing around. He is saying that, look, I'm showing you these movie previews because I want you to know exactly what's going to be happening. I want you to get a graphic representation of how much God hates this injustice. And so he, he tells of the locust and God relented and the drought and God relented. But then the plumb line, he says, nope, God's not going to relent. You're, this wall is coming down. He expanded upon it. But then notice verse 4. It begins in chapter 8. And the next vision is that of summer fruit. And God says to Amos in verse 2, Amos, what do you see? And he said, a basket of summer fruit. And then notice this description. He says, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. The picture is stunning. When you think of summer fruit, what do you think of? Something that has reached the end of its life. It's about to be plucked. And what happens when you take that fruit off the tree? It will then begin to rot. It will either be consumed by your mouth or it will be consumed by mold and mildew. And what he's saying is, I see the nation of Israel as a basket of summer fruit. They've already been plucked and they will either be eaten or they will be fully corrupted to the point that there will be, and then he switches the metaphor back to them, dead bodies everywhere. It will be silent. Friends, this is a grotesque picture of God's judgment. He expands upon it. Uh, in the coming verses, uh, in, in, in uh, verses 1 through 13. And then he gives one more picture, as if it wasn't bad enough. Chapter 9, verse 1. Here's the last preview that you get, the last movie trailer. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Now he's at the temple. And he said, strike the capitals, these are the main posts, until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword, and, not, and none of them shall flee away, and none of them shall escape. Friends, this picture is graphic. It, it shows God standing beside the altar, and he actually like takes the post of the temple and destroys the people of God with it. I mean, like you should like read this, and you should be thinking, wow, this is extreme. What in the world is going on here? Why? Is this punishment so severe? And it just reminds me that extreme penalties exist for extreme crimes. I, um, I got a warning ticket the other day. It's been the first one I'd had in a long time, long time. Because uh, so somebody secretly, I mean, this was like secret of the decade, switched the speed limit over here from 40 to 30. Well, actually, I don't even know what it is. I should know that probably since I got a warning ticket. All I know is it was 10 miles per hour less than it was when I moved into that neighborhood. And because of the route that I take from here to the church and back, I don't see a speed limit sign. So anyway, I'm just kind of going through the thing. And anyway, I, I, so I get this warning ticket. The guy was nice about it. 
Um, he said, don't ever do it again. You know, it's going to come back and bite you, you know, that kind of thing. But even if it did happen, like the, the, the fine was going to be minimal, right? I mean, it's, it's not even that it was a school back here. It's just people live in the neighborhood. They want it to be quiet. So I'm going to be paying a couple hundred bucks. Now, we understand, okay, a couple hundred bucks, speeding, neighborhood, get it. And then we also understand that there are capital problems. Uh, they, they impose a stiffer penalty. I don't know how many of you, well, it should be a lot of you, younger ones may not, but will remember O.J. Simpson trial. I think it was 95. And here, what seemed to be, you know, a rather clear, open and shut, you know, kind of case, uh, he gets all free, and then even later, will write a book, If I Did It, describing what he did as a mockery, because he knows that he can't be uh, condemned twice over the same crime. And people just riled up, like, he deserved death, he killed this woman, he killed this other guy. Like, you wanted justice for that, and you knew that he doesn't need a $200 fine. This deserves death. And so, extreme penalties for extreme crimes. What has God done through this book of Amos? He has set up the who, and that is the people of God, and the what, that is their interpersonal and societal injustice. And in these last chapters, he discloses the how. He will punish it. And it is devastating. He says, I hate this. This isn't just a minor speed infraction. This is a capital punishment. You may think that the big ones are sexual sin or the big ones are some form of idolatry. But what Amos does here is he includes interpersonal injustice into the big ones. You don't mess with this. God. So the book ends, verse 10, look at it. This is the closing scene of, of judgment. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster shall not overtake us. I say it ends. It almost ends. It almost ends. But what we have, if you wanted to add one more little bullet point, and this is how we'll conclude. There's one more aspect that he's going to give here, and that's a surprise ending. You see it in verses 11 to 15, and I'll read it in a moment. But when all is said and done, uh, for uh, those of us who love literature or, or movies, we loathe and love surprise endings. They're one of these things where you're like, you're, you're making your way through the book, you're making your way through the, through the movie, and you think you've got this thing figured out, and then all of a sudden, everything that seems so clear to you, just gets you thinking for days. I mean, like it affects your conversation at the water cooler. I mean, it's one of those things that you just never forget. I, I think of some, uh, a couple of the most um, surprising endings of movies. Uh, 1968. Huh, same year as MLK speaks. 1968, Planet of the Apes. Here it is, you think you've got this thing figured out. Like, he's on some foreign planet somewhere, and monkeys have taken over. Like, his spaceship went off course, and then the camera pans out. Sorry to ruin this for the five of you who haven't seen it. 
and the Statue of Liberty is sticking out of the sand, and you're like, oh, he was on the, he was on the planet all along. He's on Earth. Just mind-blowing. You didn't see it coming. I don't know that anyone in 1980 watching The Empire Strikes Back was ready for Darth Vader to say to Luke, no, I am your father. Changes everything you see in the previous movies. Even when they put those like ridiculous movies, episodes one through three before it, it still affected the way you saw those. It just changes everything about the book. It's, it's what uh, directors call hook, a plot twist. When it comes to the greatest surprise endings of all time, I can go with Planet of the Apes, and I'm fine with Empire Strikes Back, but I've got to add the Book of Amos. Because when you follow the plot, what you understand is that Yahweh roars in judgment against his own people, Israel. That's the shocking who. Promising their ultimate destruction, the sorrowful how, for injustice and opulence at the expense of the needy, the societal what. Now, have you seen that? Are, are you getting any warm fuzzies from reading the book of Amos up to this point? I mean, it just seems like it's a tragedy of epic proportions. I mean, when you think about the who, Amos has been saying to us, it doesn't matter what your religious affiliation is or what your ethnicity is. God roars in judgment against those whose ultimate is self, those who disregard others. He is against it. And up to this point, the movie, the book, if you will, has told us that love for God is seen and expressed in love for others, fighting for their highest good, loving God through loving others, like the great commandment teaches us. And these are people who live lives that are committed to not only the proclamation of the gospel, but what I'll also call the platforming of the gospel by, by doing good works. And then the book ended with the sorrowful how. We had God's righteous curses have already been pronounced and soon will be enacted. And this means for us who know the rest of the story, eternal separation from God in the lake of fire forever. It is a horrific judgment. If you thought the stuff in chapters 7, 8, and 9 were bad, wait till what you will read in Revelation chapter 21. And the book ends with Chapter 9, verse 29, it seems, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake us. But then there's the twist. There's the hook. Look at verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Who is the booth of David, the tent of David? God will set up a Davidic ruler, one that God had originally intended to rule and reign and to secure perfect righteousness for all his people. He's saying that day he will come, he will reign, and he will fix it. And notice what this means for these rebels, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations, not just the Jews, but all the nations who are called by my name, there will be multiple nations who will be included in these blessings and benefits. And it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes with him who sows seed, and the mountains drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. 
and I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant their vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit, and I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted, and out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord God. No relief through the entire book, and at the very end he says, I will come, I will rule, I will reign, I will restore for myself a people. In part, this would be the nation of Israel, but it is most fully represented in that engrafting of peoples into that people who would ultimately benefit from the blessings secured by the righteous ruler. See, we deserve the curses for disobedience, but a ruler would come and he would absorb the curse upon himself and he would secure the blessing for those who could never secure it and all those who place their faith in him. As Joel says, call upon the name of the Lord. They will benefit from his blessed rule. And that is our Lord and Savior, the seed of David. There's a hope. That's a way to end. And so I would exhort you, if you have not yet found refuge and relief from your own rebellion against God, by relying on Jesus Christ alone, do it today. Talk to me in the lobby. Talk to someone around you rescue that comes from God's righteous wrath through his ruler son Jesus he's coming back he's coming back to rule and reign he will execute justice upon the disobedient and mercy upon those who by faith come under the rule and reconciliation that he has provided but until then let justice roll down righteousness like an everlasting stream even so Lord Jesus come quickly let's pray Lord there's no doubt in my mind that in a gathering of this size there are some who are not reconciled to you they're living for self their ultimate is their own. They long for a prosperity and material comfort more than anything else in this world. It is their idol. And they have yet to turn to you. So show them the futility of that kind of satisfaction and pursuit. Give them grace to repent of their sin, to trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. And for those of us who have been reconciled, for those of us who have been brought into the people of God, excite us with this privilege that we get to live out your justice and your righteousness among the nations around us, building a platform for the gospel through good works and proclaiming the truth that Jesus Christ died and rose again for sinners. Or make us effective in that this week as we look to have impact on this world that you've left us until you return, until you reign over all perfectly and finally. And it's in your name we pray.